nobody's going to give me a game design job from, you know, right out of college or whatever. So I'm like, oh, well, then translation, that's going to be my end. So it's about finding what your in is uh, if you want to get into a game company. And so I'm like, okay, that's what that's got to be my angle. And I fortunately um, was hired into Capcom US um, from Japan. They had me work there for one year. And then um, I had developed such a good relationship with the Japanese producers. They trusted me so much that the Capcom US uh, president at the time said, hey, you have such a good relationship with these guys. You should just live in Japan, work at the head office there, uh, and work with them on a day-to-day basis, trying to help us get what we need uh, here in the U.S. Um, so, you know, I got sent right back one year later. That's great. Yeah, wow. People don't realize how important relationships are, and just not just in Japan, but just in general, like getting to know as many people as you can and making like real connections and not being an asshole, things like that. Everybody, welcome to the Tofugu Podcast. My name is Koichi. My name is Michael. And uh, today we did an interview with uh, Ben Jed. You may have heard him. You may have heard his voice, even. Yeah. Does uh, does this voice sound familiar? Objection. Objection. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't get the actual <laughs> voice because of. <laughs> trademarks no no ben but, judd uh he's probably not best known for but he the one thing that stood out for me is he was the uh he was the the phoenix Wright in the phoenix Wright. he was the voice game. of phoenix Wright. <laughs> yes uh he also he said objection he said take that and he said uh like stop it or something like that yeah i can't remember he the said third like one. a couple he said like seven lines total there's not a lot of audio in that game boy advance or no ds version yeah, ds maybe? game yeah but, uh, but he, he, uh, he did other things, too. Yeah, like, he's done uh, more intellectual things. He translates video games, or he did mm-hmm. translate video games Localization. For, for a living. And now he's an agent for video games. So he makes sure video games get made. Yep. Find all the good people. Find the money. Mm-hmm. Things like that. If it weren't uh, for him, there would be no video games for yeah. anyone. Absolutely. And uh, he, uh, some of the things that he localized, or he was on the team for, were besides... Phoenix Wright, which he also did localization for, besides saying the, the words. He did a Beautiful Joe, Dead Rising, Onimusha 3, and uh, Mighty Number no. 9. We actually talked about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. That, that was, was really interesting. interesting, what he had to say yeah, about One that. of our coworkers bought that, and um, so that was, that was fun. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, he was also like kind of a, a minor voice actor because he did localization, because he did translation for these games and, and worked in that area. Sometimes these game companies are like, wow, we'd like to save some money, so let's have this uh, this American do the voices for yeah. these things. And uh, like he, besides he got to be right, the voice of people who got killed. Yeah, so. like in God Hand, he was just random guy who got killed, number one, yeah. and two and three, and maybe four. And uh, also Resident Evil Outbreak. Yeah, which is really good. Yeah. Um, so we talked to him a lot about uh, just his, his experience translating, what it mm-hmm. takes to be a translator, and what he had takes- some really interesting things to say mm-hmm. about the gray zone. Is that what it's called? Yeah, it is. <laughs> talked about the gray zone in, in the Japanese language specifically. And uh, we had no idea what he was talking about until he talked about it. And uh, 
I assume neither do you. So make sure you listen to this and you'll find out what the gray zone is as well. And you'll also learn how to get into the, uh, the translation biz and the, the game making biz a little bit too. Yeah, he has some cool hot tips. Some cool and hot tips. Yeah, and also you'll learn how to end a meeting with Nintendo executives. Yeah, if you're ever in a meeting with Nintendo executives, you need this tip or you're going <laughs> to screw it up real bad. All zero of you probably? Yeah, <laughs> you never know. Anyways. It could be you, you listening to this, not the other people listening, mm-hmm. just you. So when Miyamoto says these words, you'll know what to do. Mm-hmm. Unless you pause this podcast, in which case you doomed your career. Yes. Now you'll bounce back, but you know you just won't get the Nintendo thing worked Maybe. out. Maybe. Maybe you'll bounce back like Ben Judd did when he made his first big failure. Yeah, that was a really good story, too, because he talked about failure and how he made his failure. Let's, let's stop talking about it and let's, uh, <laughs> let's get into it. Why don't we just describe the whole <laughs> interview? It was very little. No one, no one will listen to the interview. <laughs> but with no details. With no details. <laughs> All right. Okay, we'll, let's we'll get, get to started the interview. Now. Hi, everybody. Guess what? We've got some cool person to talk to today, and I bet you're all really excited. His name is Ben Judd. Hi, Ben. Hey, how you doing, guys? Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Could you let everyone know who you are and what you're all about? <laughs> you told me in advance I couldn't speak long on this one, so I'll try, <laughs> I'll try and keep it as short as I can. A little peek behind the curtain there. <laughs> there you go how the magic is created. Uh, Ben Judd, right now I'm one of three owners in uh, digital development management, DDM. We are the world's largest game-specific agency. So we represent video game companies. And separately from that, I also am one of the founding members of Dangen Entertainment, an upstart indie publisher located here in Osaka, Japan. Previously to that, I worked at Capcom for eight years. I started their internal localization team and uh, as far as I know, I was the first foreign producer out of a Japanese company. Wow. So you were a foreign producer. What does that mean exactly? At Capcom, there was Capcom US and there was Capcom Japan. I was working at Capcom Japan as a foreigner there in the company uh, and a producer. Oh, okay. So you're producing from Capcom Japan. Correct. Cool. Cool. Some of the games that you worked on, I think a lot of people have probably heard of. Um, I'm going to rattle off a few. And you can okay. fill in blanks in case I'm missing anything really big. So you worked on Beautiful Joe. Yep. Worked on Dead Rising, which I played a lot in college. Yep. Onimusha 3, Mighty Number no. 9, and Phoenix Wright series. Did you work on all the Phoenix Wright games? Man, it was so long ago. I know it was the first one and a portion of the second one. Okay. It was right around that time I was transitioning out of the localization team and into producing. So it was uh, handing the reins over to a wonderful man named Eric Bailey. Eric Bailey. I'm writing his name down, and we'll contact him next. (laughs) (laughs) You did it. You're done. You did your job. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. Goodbye. That was a great podcast. Thank you, everyone. (laughs) On Phoenix Wright, I I saw that you're listed as a voice actor. What voice did you do on Phoenix Wright? Uh, I did uh, Phoenix. You did the Uh, main character. That's right. What? Um, That's that's right. Right. How how often do people ask you to do the voice? (laughs) All the time. Oh, no. All the time. Okay, so we won't do that. We won't. But I will I, I will, will if I can go down a very quick rabbit hole oh, because I please. do have a very funny story yeah, yeah. Uh, on that. Obviously, you guys had Alex uh, Smith in to do a podcast before. Super great guy. Uh, I can go down a separate rabbit hole talking about him. Um, <laughs> yeah, please now, do. We'll, we'll stick to Phoenix Wright. 
So when they initially uh, did that game, I mean, it was about how cheaply can we possibly do the voice? And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, let's use the internal localization guys. And I'm like, okay, you know, I, I, used, <laughs> I did some acting and some drama when I was in high school, so I should be able to do this. And we go into what is like a little small, maybe one person can barely fit into it, <laughs> like asbestos-covered uh, production sound studio. And you can see like through this thick glass like several meters away, there's the actual the uh, sound recording room where the sound engineer is located, and there's this really dim like light bulb that flickers in the background. And I'm like, am I going to be you know killed in this room or something? It's, it's it was very scary. But you get in there, and he's like, okay, you know, I want you to I want you to say objection, and I'm like, okay, and I say it, and he's like, no, I want you to say it a little bit faster. I'm like, okay, and we go through this you know multiple times and. The initial game obviously was on um, uh, GBA, I think, but then the English voice first appeared on the DS version, and that didn't have a lot of space, uh, as a lot of those cartridges didn't back then. So it was pretty much objection, uh, take that, hold it, right? (laughs) (laughs) The the three things that that lawyers always say. Of course they do. Take that. (laughs) But um, at the end of the day, you know, six or seven words – and it took like two hours to record. And for the word objection, since that was you know the, the most important word of the game, I probably said it over 300 times. <laughs> and it got to the point where I was like, guys, it's one word. There's only so much intonation and inflection and, yeah. and places you can emphasize for one English word. I can say it fast, slow, you know, deep, high-pitched. You know, but there's only so many things I can do with the one word. And the sound engineer goes – can you say it like a hot-blooded lawyer? I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) that is your advice? What what are we in, Boston translation? Say it with more feeling. It's like only one step away from that. But (laughs) anyways, two hours of of doing that uh, was hoarse for the rest of the day. I could barely speak. Um, And the funny part was, at that time, Nintendo was pushing uh, voice recognition, right? That was one of the things the DS had. Quite frankly, it couldn't do it. (laughs) But that was one of the things they were pushing the DS could do. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that game was supposed to have voice recognition in it. And we had a mid-production ROM that came over. And we're sitting there testing it internally at the localization team. And you could hold down a button and yell into the mic objection. And then it would, was supposed to trigger it and go, bang, objection. And you know, internally it was, would say it in the game. And we get the initial test ROMs and I'm playing it and I'm holding down the button going, objection, and it's not recognizing my voice. Like, <laughs> I'm like, wait a second. This is my voice. If anybody's voice, it should be recognizing my voice, but it's not. So, right. so did that make it into the final game? Yeah, that feature was in there. Did it work? They had to dumb it down to the point where it's like, if you hear any noise above <laughs> 001 decibels, then just trigger. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it worked then on some level. On some very limited levels, yes. Was that hot-blooded lawyer voice? Is that the thing that made it work? Did you finally get it done after getting that advice? Yeah, I'll tell you what. I was just like, (laughs) all my acting experience just wasn't enough, but I needed that voice coach's uh, trigger, the keyword. He said, hot-blooded lawyer. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) So I should say it like this. (laughs) And all that experience you have with lawyers, I'm sure. Of course. Different kinds of lawyers, cold-blooded lawyers, calm lawyers, hot-blooded you They're the very difference. different from hot-blooded lawyers. Yes. That's absolutely right. <laughs> do you know like which take they use? Do they use that take, or do they just end up taking like the very first one out of three? Oh, I, I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> by the time it's 
I was just kind of like in a daze being like, I can't believe I said six words like over a thousand times. I wonder if if the sound engineer knew about post-editing. At a certain point, you just do that. (laughs) I I also saw that um, you were voice actor on God Hand. Oh, which that's I, a great game. Which I bring up mostly because I know Koichi loves that game. I never beat it, though. <laughs> I've never played it, but I've heard Wait, a lot about who, it from Who were you Koichi. in God Hand? I don't recognize I, your voice. They all sound the same, kind of. But <laughs> I, I want to say I was like person that gets punched or punk that gets punched or something. <laughs> like, Sad. I, in Onimusha 3, I was a villager that gets killed in like three seconds. <laughs> I was the red shirt you know, voice actor. It's just, I got okay. killed in most of the games I was in. That's awesome. Okay. So if you're working on those games, you can get a chance to be a voice. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. It's, it's really <laughs> funny to hear that. Like, Cause like Phoenix, right. It's like a really well-known game. And maybe back then it was like pretty small. I have no idea, but seeing behind the curtain about how like the objection part was made, like, which is one of the most well-known parts of that game. I think like even people who don't know about the game, they're like, Oh, Phoenix, right. Objection. Yeah. And that was you. That was me, indeed. They're like, wait a second, you're not a part of SAG. We don't have to pay you any extra money ever. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're already an internal resource. Let's use him. Oh, man. So you're you're not paid every time someone says objection. That's no, funny. I am not. Alas, alas, <laughs> Japanese companies and especially Kansai Japanese companies are about as cheap as they come. <laughs> so I want to know, like, how how did you get started in in translation? Did you? like start right out at, at Capcom or were, was there kind of a, a pathway to Capcom? Well, if you don't mind me taking one step back even before that, I think my path to Japan was very unique. It'll be quick, I promise. A lot of people come to Japan because of anime, karate, food. There's lots of different reasons, but for me personally, it was around, I was 16 or 17, I was doing a block business class in high school. And it was about that time that the um, automotive wars were going on between Japanese cars and American cars. And in the 80s, we were going through the whole, you know, by American nationalistic sediment. Mm -hmm. And at one point in the news, a Japanese car was lit on fire, I think, by some automotive workers. Mm -hmm. I'm from Ohio. And so both Ohio and, of course, Detroit. Michigan, rather, are both states that had a lot of those uh, manufacturing plants and a lot of the money was coming from them. So they got hit quite hard when the Japanese cars started to do much better, you know, in the 80s. And so when that happened, I asked my business teacher, I'm like, you know, why are we burning, you know, random Japanese cars? That seems pretty dumb. And she's like, yeah, listen, you know, America is a great country with tons of different people from all over the world. And we're the great, great American melting pot and all that. But sometimes uh, we have a penchant for only thinking about ourselves and not looking out at the rest of the world. Talk to me about a, a book called The Ugly American, uh, another book, Do's and Taboos of International Trade, about uh, the first uh, intern that worked at Sony, foreign intern that worked at Sony ever in the 80s. But nonetheless, she opened my eyes to the fact that a lot of Americans don't really have passports, don't travel the world. If they travel the world, they don't try to learn the languages of the different countries they go to, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so I felt kind of embarrassed uh, to be American for the first time in my entire life. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to a country that not a lot of Americans go to. I'm going to learn the language. I'm going to learn the culture. uh, And I'm going to show people there that there are some Americans that are willing to go the extra yards, nine yards, three yards. I can't even, my my American. (laughs) I don't know. The whole nine yards? Nine yards. There you go. 
to uh, try to meet you on your cultural board. So that was my key motivation to go to Japan. Uh, and I ended up uh, getting a um, study abroad scholarship. I can't believe that Japan was like, hey, come over here, study at our university, and we'll pay you a stipend to live. And it's just like, uh, that's not going to happen in America. But that, <laughs> thank you. I'll do that. And I really fell in love with the country. It's absolutely amazing. Anybody trying to, to get here, uh, you absolutely must find a way to do it because it is truly a really fantastic place to be. But I was there studying for one year, and then I took the Square Enix translation test. Um, I wanted to be a translator at Square Enix. I love Square Enix games, and I totally blew it. I failed miserably. They asked me what my strengths and weaknesses were, and I did not know those Japanese words, even though my Japanese was pretty good. And so it was just like the most embarrassing, just uh, I think about it today, and it uh, makes me feel like a, a loser. But uh, I was unable to do that. And then I said, okay, I need to study harder. And so I went and I dedicated the next two years to studying while being an English teacher here. But I, whenever I fail, that's the spark that lights myself to push myself harder and harder. And so I was studying for the Japanese level one test. And I was able to pass that in like three months. I think I got an 86 or something like that. But nice. it was easier back then than what it is now. Still... I knew that I wanted to get into video games, and I give this advice to everybody, which is a lot of people dream big, but they don't actually have a battle plan on or a strategy on how to get to the top of the mountain. They'll say, oh, I want to climb the mountain, but it's like, okay, you first have to climb the first, the base part of the mountain, and then you got to like yeah. get from the base part to the middle part. Then the middle part, you know, you can't just jump to the top. And so for me, my micro goals were, it's like, okay, first thing is, improve your Japanese. Then the second goal is find a job in Japan, which was teaching English. Uh, it is for a lot of people. And then it was, okay, get into a Japanese company. And then it was get into a video game company. And then it was find a job that's going to make yourself stand out uh, and be able to climb the ladder. And then eventually it was, hey, make a video game. But the dream as a, as a child was always to make a video game, right? But again, I had to do these little micro steps to get there. So that was a very long way to answer a very short question. To make these uh, micro steps useful for our listeners, like let's break down a few of them. So you said that you had first step, you had to improve your Japanese. Like what, what kind of sort of actionable things did you do that like other people could emulate or like sort of modify or take for their own so that they can get started too? Brute force, you know, just putting in the hours uh, is something that people don't realize. You, <laughs> yeah. you got to come at it almost like it's a job, you know, three to five hours a day is one piece. Another piece is find the thing that's really interesting to you. I was playing games uh, with my notebook. And whenever you're doing something that you like, your absorption rate for learning new things, not just languages, uh, increases, you know, a huge amount. So whether anime is your thing or whether it's uh, manga or games or whatever, focus on doing that thing in Japanese. Another thing I advise people to do is try to listen to as many different types of voices. The human ear just naturally gets used to a certain tonality or a gender or whatever. And then you're really good at picking up what maybe females are saying, but you're not good at picking up what males are saying. And so try to surround yourself with as many different types of uh, voice patterns, whether it's high-pitched voices, low voices, female voices, male voices, children's voices, to give you that variety. 
because that that range is going to help you, I think, get better at the speaking, the listening, etc. After you improved your Japanese and you decided you're going to get into a Japanese company, how did you go about doing that? And what company did you get into? Well, like I said, I was an English teacher for a little bit and I just jumped. It wasn't a Japanese company. It was a Japanese game company. I, I skipped that step kind nice. of. But <laughs> a lot of people, they say, hey, I want to get into games. And they think of it from their perspective. They don't think of it from the, hey, what, what is the company going to think when they look at you? What are you going to have that they that they need? And honestly, I knew I was not a good programmer. I knew I was a terrible artist, can't make music. Nobody's going to give me a game design job from, you know, right out of college or whatever. So I'm like, oh, well, then translation, that's going to be my end. So it's about finding what your in is uh, if you want to get into a game company. And so I'm like, okay, that's what that's got to be my angle. And I fortunately um, was hired into Capcom US um, from Japan. They had me work there for one year, and then um, I had developed such a good relationship with the Japanese producers. They trusted me so much that the Capcom US uh, president at the time said, hey, you have such a good relationship with these guys. You should just live in Japan, work at the head office there, uh, and work with them on a day-to-day basis trying to help us get what we need uh, here in the US. Um, So you know, I got sent right back one year later. That's great. People don't realize how important relationships are. just not just in Japan, but just in general, like getting to know as many people as you can and making like real connections and not being an asshole, things like that. Well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say I'm uh, innocent to the last last piece. <laughs> I'm sure I, at one time or another I have been, but uh, absolutely to your point, yeah. relationships are very important. What you guys do on the website's amazing. One of the things I wanted to talk about was the gray zone. We can get to that in a bit. Gray zone. The gray zone. It's an alien thing, huh? It is. The greys. So you have to be abducted <laughs> by the greys and then taken to their zone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they inject you with Japanese. I get it. Okay. That sounds oh, yeah. like a really exactly exciting way to learn Japanese. <laughs> oh, okay. Everyone from the aliens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just take this one simple injection for $99.99. <laughs> oh, that's actually not too bad. $100 for Japanese you, Even fluency. if it was like $9,999, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> So, so once you, you got over to, to Capcom Japan, was that it? Were, were you like, okay, dream achieved, and then you were just like grinding along, or did you have like more of the mountain to climb, or did you find a new mountain? There's always a mountain on the other side of the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> when I had joined Capcom Japan, I was one foreigner out of a thousand people. And so I was a man on an island, and I was just like so nervous you know, I'd bump into some of these amazing creators and be like, holy crap, you know, I just met the guy that created Resident Evil. I loved that game as a kid. You know, it's just like every day was like being in the candy store, kid in the candy store, but I was still very um, nervous. And after spending time doing what I was initially sent over to do, which was gain different assets, talk about US magazine lead times, any sort of cultural difference the Japanese market would have versus the, the Western markets. At one point, one of the producers said, hey, Ben, can you come down and listen to this dialogue for a second? I'm like, okay. I went down, and it had some pretty awkward voice in it. And he's like, what do you think? And I'm like, eh, I'll be honest with you. It, it's, it sounds kind of weird. And uh, he's like, really? I'm like, yeah. And at that moment, that then and there, they ended up calling up the voice recording studio, which is in Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
and said, hey, you know, our internal guy says it sounds weird. And then the owner of the company, since this was his bread and butter, was like, I'm on a plane tomorrow. And he came over and we're in this meeting room, I still remember, and he's getting very mad at me. And he's like, so what's your ulterior motive here? What are you trying to do? You're trying to steal this job from me? And I'm just like, dude, I just love Capcom games. And I want them to be the best that they can. And right now, a lot of people kind of make fun of the quality of the voice. And so I'm just, I'm giving you what my read is as a native speaker. Then after that, they sent me out of the room. Then like a a day later came up and said, listen, we're going to get rid of that studio. But that creates a new problem. We don't have anybody (laughs) to translate the game. Uh, Can you help us with that? And I'm like, Oh, doing something on the creative side of game. That's pretty awesome. And so I talked with the president of Capcom US and asked him if I could do it. And he said, hey, if it's after work hours, you can. So I put myself in a scenario (laughs) where I would come in at 8 a.m. and from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m. would do the U.S. Capcom U.S. um, international business sort of work. And then I would go out, grab dinner, and starting at 6, I would start translating the game, uh, oftentimes until midnight or sometimes until 2 a.m., and I'd just stay at the, uh, the office. So I worked my butt off, but I was so happy to be able to do something so creative like that that, you know, I, I was making games, you know, for the first time ever. And, and what game was this that, uh, that you got to work on? That was Resident Evil Outbreak. It was on oh, PlayStation yeah. 2. Nice. Online game. Wait, an online game? Yep. Yep, PlayStation 2 had a modem. I, you know? I remember that. Yeah, I've seen people play it on YouTube, and I've, I, oh. I, didn't, I never had like a, P- a PS2 that could connect to the internet, so I just watch streams of it because it looks pretty fun. It was the executive producer that created Street Fighter 2, and mm-hmm. just this guy, a man named Fun- Funamizu-san, he made Resident Evil Outbreak, and he made Monster Hunter, and then he left oh, the company. Wow. And I'm just like, wow, that guy alone, his choices has probably earned a billion dollars for Capcom. <laughs> wow. Nice. But anyways, I digress uh, back to the, the story. And that was, so after I was doing that, I got to a point where I'm like, hey, you know, I can't native check this and translate it because I'm going to just make the same mistakes. It needs to be a separate person. And that allowed me to hire in uh, a tester or a native, uh, someone to be a proofreader. And then after that, when we started putting out a couple games, then I'm like, listen, we really should be doing this internally. We should have an internal team. And at that point, I was able to look at their process, and I could not believe the process they had at Capcom. This was even in you know 2003, less than 15 years ago, mm-hmm. which was they had four people. They had four non-English native-speaking Japanese people And what they'd basically do is take the Japanese and they would turn it into English. But none of these people were bilingual, true bilinguals. None of them were truly native speakers of English. And so, you know, it it wasn't that great. And then they would take this kind of watered down translation of the game and then they would send it over to the voice recording studio, which would then do a rewrite of what they got and make it sound cool. (laughs) what you've got right there is a very very broken yeah. you know telephone that's happening for yeah. a lot of their <laughs> as you got to do it internally you got to have people boots on the ground mm-hmm. people that can do back and forth, talk with the different creators and you need to have you know foreigners that can go from japanese into english you need to have those native speakers 
and they let me build it from there. How uh, big of a team did you end up building up? And By the time I became a producer, we had, I want to say 12. I had to fight tooth and nail to get FIGS translators in there. And all this stuff happens because of how accounting is done at a major corporation. Mm-hmm. You know, where are those internal costs going to lay? And ultimately, even though a lot of producers didn't want the FIGS team, as soon as we hired them, they're like, oh, I want to use them. I want to use them. I want to use them. And it became super popular. <laughs> so, so what exactly is a, is a FIGS team? So um, French, Italian, German, Spanish. These oh. would be translator, base language, most often English, and translated into those languages for the European version. Okay. So your team also was not just English. You were like getting everything translated uh, for like Europe as well. That's correct. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty cool. Are they are they pretty big markets? French, Italian, German, Spanish? It depends on the market and depends on the type of game. Traditionally, PC uh, Germany is a very big yeah. market for that. Hmm. Beyond that, um, if it's anything that's Japanese-based, Fra- France is pretty big. They have a very strong affinity for Japanese content. Hmm. And then uh, England always is a very strong uh, heavy hitter in that market. So, yeah, I mean, it depends. Spanish and Spain and Italy, not so much. Why, why do you think that the, the French have an affinity for Japanese games in particular? I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of craftsmen uh, in both countries. Um, mm-hmm. There's the, the food culture that's very similar. They go back and forth, I think, with the, who has the highest rated food on a yearly basis. <laughs> yep. um, but there's also the art style. I think they also appreciate the anime um, art a lot. There's the Japan, was it Expo? That's called. There's a few major Japanese events that happen uh, in France, etc. I can um, give you guys the funny Resident Evil story. I know you want it. You deserve it. Okay. I think it's for that. I do love Resident yes. Evil a lot. So Okay. So obviously Resident Evil, one of the most quotable, memorable games. It was right about that time where video games were getting into CD more and more, which meant more story, more voice, etc. And obviously the voice in that is is infamous. I had heard when I joined Capcom the reason why the voice sounds that way. And many people think, oh, they were going after the B-movie vibe. Absolutely not the yeah. case. <laughs> Everyone says that in like reviews. Like, oh, they just really captured the B-movie They got that, that spirit. Tommy Wiseau spirit. <laughs> yeah. 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 But uh, in reality, that was a game that they had no idea it was going to sell in the West. They thought it was going to sell big in Japan. And traditionally, the money you make on Japanese sales, even though the unit uh, um, amount be, may be less was that it was usually three or four times more. Because yeah. obviously Japanese games are sold for uh, 6,800 yen. And of that 6,800 yen, there's not price protection, uh, there's no returns, and <laughs> you basically get the lion's share of that money as a publisher. Hmm. Versus America, where you have to sell it for like $40, there's returns, right. there's all the, these other things that chip away your yeah. costs to the point where you're only making about $20. The yen so, was stronger I, back then? The yen, it went back and forth. Okay. You know, obviously when the bubble burst, uh, yeah. things were not good. It was like a 130 or 40 yen per the dollar. Oh, so okay, it wasn't great then. Great. That's pretty bad. <laughs> but I think right around Resident Evil was released, it may have not, have not bursted yet. So it was still about a one-to-one ratio, um, which would have meant a lot more money in Japan. But I digress. The point here is 
they had no idea it was going to sell like how it did uh, in the West. And so it was, it was built up as a game for the Japanese audience. And they wanted the Japanese audience to feel like they were watching a Hollywood movie with Western stars. And English, of course, is always seen as cool uh, in Japan. And so what they ended up doing was recording the voice and asking the voice actors to, to read at half speed. So it sounds awkward. <laughs> Wait, what? It sounds awkward, not necessarily because okay. they're acting poorly. They are not acting great, but it's because they're reading at half the speed. Go back and listen to those lines, and it's and they are. They're it's very slow. It's very slow pace. Yeah, it is slow. So it's to make it more understandable for the Japanese audience. Then that's right. Take a look at this. You know, it's it's not <laughs> take a look at this. Yeah. Like, you know, now I'm having so flashbacks. That's what's Almost yep. became a Jill sandwich. That's right. It all makes <laughs> sense. There you go. Wow. Mind blown. And the, Mike yeah, the language is pretty simple too. <laughs> yeah. Like, now that I think That's about right. it, <laughs> I need oh to go gosh. back to this and yeah, I'm <laughs> ready. I'm ready to go play it right now. I never questioned it. I, did, <laughs> I never thought about it. That was, yeah. that was a long time ago. But they didn't do that for the GameCube remake, did they? I mean, it seemed like the GameCube remake. Uh, I'll say they did all new voices for that, didn't they? Yeah, they they did. I don't know if they had them read at half speed, though, for that. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) by that time, it was a huge phenomenon, and it had become so popular that, you know. And by that time, they had really good localizers and and uh, translators, and so they were able to do a better job. That was still cutting edge back when it first came out initially. Yeah. And were were you at Capcom at that time? I think uh, GameCube remake was two thousand two ish, two thousand one. Yeah, I was. I was at. I was at. Cap, it was two thousand two. I was at Capcom US uh, when it came out. Um, okay. I was also at Capcom US when the design document for Killer Seven came in. And first off, uh, Suda Goichi is a crazy person, and. Yeah. When that pitch came in and it was saying, oh, yes, you saved by going to the bathroom, I was like, you know, I had to translate it from Japanese to English and I had to sit there and read the sentences like four or five times. I'm like, does this really mean what I think it means? Because that's really freaking weird. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I, I never uh, played Killer7, but I remember in uh, reading about it in game magazines. Is that one like there's like se- are there seven characters you play or there's like seven villains? I can't remember. I want to, I want to say it's something like that. And there's multiple personalities, but yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, something like multiple. When this came in, to make matters worse, not only was the the content of the the design document crazy, but it was like sent over fax, and it's like somebody had like (laughs) like it was like a McDonald's bun uh, fillet of fish, like how it's like half on the the patty and half off. Mm -hmm. Is like like somebody had half faxed it like put it in like diagonal and so like i'm only getting some of the words and some of them are really darked out i'm trying to make heads and tails of what's going on it's <laughs> wow. like i have no idea what this is in front of me but i have to translate it and let the marketing team know what they're gonna have to sell in like a year wow <laughs> what's what's it like uh working with nintendo i'm just curious i've heard a lot of things and i will say this i've worked with them in different ways uh, uh-huh. throughout my career obviously i'm a video game agent what that means is i represent a lot of different teams and we pitch a lot of different you're probably working with them now of course yes great company but the kyoto culture is you can see it everywhere in how that company acts hmm. they are so clearly a toy maker 
more than they are a game uh, hardware maker. And a lot of their choices reflect that. But the, the funniest thing is if you ever get a chance to go into the, the HQ uh, headquarters there in Kyoto, the thing that's most shocking is it is the most nondescript lobby you'll ever see. There's not a single Mario or Link <laughs> or anything, anything on the walls, nothing standing up, uh, no figures, nothing. You just you walk in and you think you walked into a hospital. It's just this gray, <laughs> gray space with some tables on the side. So, so and amazing. even the meeting rooms are that way. Yep. So yep. what do you mean by uh, by their their culture is is so Kyoto? Kyoto. There's a word that most people describe uh, the Kyoto culture as, which is hataguroi, which I guess a, a rough translation would be. It's not what you see is what you get. Basically, uh, they're not very straightforward. They're not very um, easy to read. They'll kind of say one thing to you, but really think another. Um, I'm not going to, I'm intentionally not using like words like two faced, et cetera, because that just has too much of a negative connotation. It's not to that level, but a very interesting cultural piece is they will say at the very end of hanging out with them, Bubuske demo agarimasenka, which basically means bubuske is a kind of rice based porridge. And it basically mm -hmm. means, won't you come up and have some rice porridge with me? But what that really means is, rice porridge is the thing you eat at the very end of the meal. It's the closer, kind of. And so they're kind of saying, oh, it's this time. It's time for you to go. But they're <laughs> inviting you up to have porridge. And so a foreigner that d doesn't know that part of the culture would be like, oh, yeah. porridge, sure. Nice. Uh, I think I would have yeah. a dish. But <laughs> for Kyotoites, it, it like means, hey, get the hell out of here. So on one hand, it seems like a nice thing, but it's actually a hint of what they're really thinking, which is mm. it's time for you to go. So it's like, hey, buddy, it's porridge time. See you later. Kind That's of. right. And so Nintendo is a very much, I can guarantee you over their past history, there's been tons of foreign entities that have gone and talked to them and walked away thinking, oh, yes, I nailed it. I got this deal locked down. We're going to do all this business with Nintendo. And then it never goes anywhere. And they're like, what? You know, they offered me porridge. I thought I thought we had it in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they stayed for the porridge. That was the mistake. <laughs> they failed the test. Yeah. Objection. It's time for an ad. Take that. It's Wani Connie. Don't hit me there. <laughs> I don't, what, what does he say? Um, uh, tell the court where you were punched. <laughs> the, the jury's been paid. Um, speaking of the jury being paid, as in us <laughs> being paid to judge something, we'd like to do an ad and judge uh, wanikani.com, our sponsor. Mm. And by sponsor, I mean the thing that we make. Yeah, but we're, we're putting it on the dock mm -hmm. and really giving it the, the grill, oh, as the yes. lawyers say. Yes, we're putting it up on the stand um, mm -hmm. and cross-examining it. Yeah, and it's witnessed to a crime, and mm -hmm. it's the witness. Yeah, so, so Mr. Mr. Wanikani... Oh, is that me? You. Oh, yes. Isn't it... Isn't it <laughs> Isn't it true that uh, that you can teach about over two thousand kanji and over six thousand vocabulary words in a little bit over a year? Well, under oath, which I swore on a Bible, yes. Cool. Uh, no further questions. 
I'd like to call my next witness up. Typical Japanese classroom. <laughs> Hi, it's me. Typical Japanese classroom. How long would you say it takes to learn that same amount of kanji? Oh, definitely about 10 or 11 years. Would you say that most of your students actually make it to 2,000 kanji or 6,000 vocabulary words? No, some do, but no. Would you say that you just tell them to learn it and you don't actually tell them how? We tell them to write it over and over on a piece of paper until it just, you know, gets into their brain. <laughs> I'd like to call up my expert witness, Mr. Uh, education Man. <laughs> it's me, Education Man. Uh, would you say that writing kanji over and over again helps you to memorize learning how to read a kanji? No, because after a certain amount of time, your brain turns off. No further questions. Flying away. Well, that was an ad. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Boy, did we very awkwardly try to tie in the content of this podcast into our advertisement. If you didn't like it, please tweet at us. Objection. Yep, just write at we'll, Tofugu. We'll tweet overruled. Objection. Yes, we'll do that. So let's get back to the show. Uh, if you do want to be, just one little real ad tidbit, if you do want to be a translator, an interpreter, one of the most important things is going to definitely be vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wani Kani, I think, is the best way, I would say, to learn vocabulary and reading and kanji. And, uh, you know, you can't, you can't skip it like... All the people who email us, like insisting that they don't want to learn how to read and they just want to learn how to talk, like learning how to read, it it opens up so many doors. It lets you read a lot of things, and if you read a lot, you kind of build up that 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 knowledge base that you are going to need to uh, to be able to do translation and uh, interpretation, or or just really learn Japanese, even if it's just for fun. So. Yeah, you got to learn how to read, Mm -hmm. and reading skills are language skills. It is the basics. Mm -hmm. So uh, head on over to wanikani.com, W-A-N-I-K-A-N-I.com, and uh, give it a try. The first three levels are free. That's about, uh, what, 80 kanji and about 200 vocabulary words. And Mm -hmm. you can, if you're going at a decent pace, you can get that all done in less than three weeks. Yeah, and that's about like more than you'd learn in a semester of Japanese oh, class. Yeah, that's like that's like maybe a year in some mm-hmm. beginner Japanese classes on three yeah. weeks. So. so get it all knocked out for free. Mm-hmm. See if it works for you. If it doesn't, well, just send us an email. We'll suggest something else that's yeah. not ours. And uh, let's get back to the show. You said you work in Osaka, right? How how is the Osaka business culture uh, different? Osaka is the best place on the planet you get the super cool awesome side of japan but it's very straightforward it's the business culture so people are more, they're more fast talkers people also on the other end they also are focused in comedy and so i've walked into bars in osaka and they'd be like oh it's some crazy foreigner come over and let's talk you know and you Compare that to Tokyo, where I've walked into bars uh, and sat down next to somebody, and and the person's there, and I'm like, hey, hey, what do you do for a living? And they'd be like, oh, I'm a programmer. And I'd be like, hey, I'm a producer. That's great. You make games. And he's like, yeah. And then it's silence. 
<laughs> it's like, uh, you know, like you just, you're in a public place drinking, you're by yourself. You seem like you want to have a conversation, but obviously you don't. So there's this barrier, the wall you have to get through in a lot of different places in Japan. Mm. Uh, and that does not exist in Osaka. It's pretty easy to make friends. And most of the foreigners that live here are just like, I do not want to ever leave Osaka. But of course, unfortunately, there's only a limited number of jobs compared to Tokyo. Hmm. That's true. And the food is pretty good in Osaka. Oh, it's so good. The food is amazing. <laughs> it's glorious. Plus, it's, you know, like 20 or 30% cheaper than uh, Tokyo, mm-hmm. which is always nice. If you guys don't mind, because I know I, I over talk, it's no, uh, Tools of the good. Trade as an agent, uh, I'd like to talk about the gray zone, which is. I was about my... to ask you about the gray zone. <laughs> Thank I've you. Just it's been my. Chomping at the bit for this. What is the gray zone? So obviously your, your uh, website's going to be about a lot of uh, specific linguistic tips, tools of the trade, things to study. Sometimes it's culturally specific. What I want to talk about uh, is the gray zone, which is a lot of people get obsessed, I think, with specifics, with things having to be accurate or exact. And it happens certainly in translation uh, more than it does in other areas, but it happens culturally as well. Uh, and some of the things you can do if you don't overemphasize perfection uh, are amazing. And that is what I mean when I say the gray zone. So um, back in the day when I was interpreting uh, for Capcom, I would interpret for a lot of their events. Um, and many of the Western press would say, Ben, you're one of the best uh, interpreters I know, um, which was really great to hear that. Uh, and a lot of people asked me how I was able to do that. And it came down to one simple thing, which was I wouldn't get obsessed with nailing every single detail correctly, perfectly, accurately, um, because you're not going to be able to do that. And the more energy and focus you put on trying to be perfect with the tra- with the interpretation, um, the more it's going to um, end up uh, making you have shorter um, interpretations. It's going to end up sometimes um, giving you getting you painted into a corner and you're going to forget what the last thing somebody was talking about was. Uh, and it's going to create some natural, uh, unnatural rather flow. So what I'd like to posit to some of your listeners is the gray zone. It's okay to be 85% accurate in a lot of the, the translations uh, or interpretations that you do. Of course, it's going to be case specific. And I'm, and I'm saying you still have to get the specifics like, the numbers or whatever, if somebody said a thousand yen, you can't come in and say 2000 yen because that's wrong. But in general, you don't have to be so focused on perfection and getting every single minor detail across. And many interpreters and translators do that. They get so focused on what was the base wording that they don't allow themselves a creative gray zone to live within. And then I think the overall body of work suffers because of that. I think that the best translation and interpretation comes when you're allowed to play with it a little bit. And I say gray zone because that obviously conjures up maybe a 10% plus or minus here and there. So you can't get too far off with the base content. Is. But I do believe that people need to be flexible when it comes to doing those sort of jobs. Um, 
but it's also not just that. I think it's also uh, when it comes to the culture. We had at Capcom a couple of people that came in after I did. Um, and we ended up hiring somebody who was really good at speaking. And we ended up hiring somebody who was really good at uh, reading and writing uh, translation. And it was funny because both of them complemented each other very well, but neither of them could do the other's job well. So one of the guys was was a fast and loose talker, and he sounded great whenever he'd interpret. However, the the translator, the person who would do the reading and writing text translation, was a shy person. He was not comfortable speaking, doing public speaking. He was a bit awkward. But when it came down to the book stuff and he's just sitting there and looking at the text and writing it, you know, he came up with some fantastic creative uh, translations. So a lot of people, I think, naturally gravitate towards better speaking or better reading and writing. Uh, and that's okay. We all have our strengths. We all have our weaknesses as people. But my point is, in either or, you have to give yourself uh, a creative buffer. And you can't be so focused on what that what what was said word for word trying to get that out um, or it's going to not sound correct. And here's one final example. I know I'm over talking. I do that a lot. No. Apologies. But when I was an English teacher in Japan, um, we had two people that were looking out for us. We had one lady who was an ex race queen um, and she was in the Board of Education. She was assigned to help out all the English teachers there. And then we had another man who was the head of the English curriculum, um, and he you know, had spent his whole life studying English. And the funny thing was that when the ex-race queen uh, lady would speak to us, she would fumble through her English. She hadn't, she'd studied a little bit, but not like as a, an English teacher. And so her first sentence was really hard to understand but she would read the room and she would realize it wasn't getting through and then she would come up with a second sentence trying to use the same concept and then usually that would get through whereas the the english uh, teacher he was so obsessed with being perfect that he would speak very slowly he would be like i was going to the store and picked up some vegetables or I'm but sorry, was did you there just play a clip from resident evil well said um but that that's how he would speak because he was so focused on perfection and not on allowing himself the ability to make mistakes whereas the um x-race queen was able to do that uh, and what ended up happening was the X-Race Queen was easier to understand because there is a natural rhythm that needs to occur in English for it to, to sound natural. And so speed and natural flow, if you just don't worry about the mistakes as much and you make a few mistakes here and there, but you're instead able to speak at a, a semi-normal speed, then people are going to understand you more. And that's the important point that I would like to convey to anybody listening, which is you absolutely have to go out there. You have to make the mistakes. If you're the sort of person that, that gets bent up uh, and bent out of shape, rather, uh, making those sort of mistakes, then it's going to be to your detriment because 
you're going to end up not having the natural speed of speaking. And that natural flow is going to make more people understand you. And the more you get used to that rhythm, then you can go back and correct some of the more imperfections that you have. But being able to do that, being able to speak that way has allowed me to do not only the producer job at Capcom, but the current job that I do as an agent. And I make mistakes. Uh, obviously, in English, you've heard me make several uh, while talking to me, but in Japanese as well. However, it still uh, ends up being more natural just because of the natural cadence I have. So that is what I mean by being in the gray zone. Yeah, we have a we have a couple of things on Tofuga that are a little bit similar, though not not coined, um, and more on like the learning side of things. Where um, we have, we have, I think we made one video, one article that it's about like how learning a language is really just a race to see who can make the most mistakes in the least amount of time. And it's just like encouraging people not to focus on that perfection, because every time every time you do something. Even if, you know, like, even if you make mistakes, like, you're going to basically make a plus one advancement in your level. But if you spend, like, ten times as long making it perfect, you're still making a plus one advancement in your level. But it takes ten times as long. So long as you're not eating the porridge at Nintendo when you think you're closing the big deal. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> but, you know, all those people who made that mistake, maybe they learned something. So Yeah, they have a plus one for when they go yeah, with that's Nintendo a big plus again. One. <laughs> They're like, don't eat the porridge. Yeah, and we have a, <laughs> Absolutely. We have another, uh, we have an ebook called 4,500 Japanese Sentences. Very simple thing where it's just we have 4,500 sentences and the whole purpose of it is to like encourage people to translate it not to 100% perfection, but to 80% perfection. And then to get through as many sentences as they can to 80% rather than 100. And so, like, it's similar to what you're saying, but it's, like, on the learning side, too, where, like, that carries, it's great to hear that that carries through past, like, learning and more into, like, actual communication as well. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised sometimes, though, by how much some people, like, hold on to perfection. I know. Um, Like, I I remember sharing a, a post recently. I think it was that article that you were talking about koichi and i just said like pro tip perfection will hold you back and there were so <laughs> many like comments it was like no perfection's what makes you the best and it was uh it was i mean their comments so i didn't didn't get get in the firefight but i was surprised by the a lot of people were like oh yeah that's totally true um but there were a lot of people were like no perfection is is my god um i would it, say this i'd say this about the japanese culture it, if not any, um, allows you to make lots of mistakes. They're very friendly about people who just trying to learn the language. They're often, you know, very supportive. Um, and you know, if you make a mistake, it's the culture with the most amount of apologies. So you just apologize <laughs> and things move on. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, that's something that maybe people think is opposite the opposite is true in Japan because a lot of people view Japan as like, Oh, perfection is great. Everything runs mm-hmm. so super smoothly. And it's because that everyone's a super perfectionist, but there were, there were lots of times, uh, when I, when I was in Japan that I, you know, made a mistake or I saw other people make a mistake or I saw in the schools that like children were encouraged to be like, Oh, Hey, you made a mistake and here's how to do it better. There's one thing that's interesting. Uh, it ties into one other quick point and then I, I will shut up. Um, and that yeah, is keep on, keep on trucking. What I think happens when it comes to translators, fledgling translators, and how they get obsessed with the perfection piece is 
you know, there's some great creator that, you know, you love their work and the games they're making and you revere them. And so you naturally are like, oh, I need to make sure I say exactly what that person wanted. And you feel like you can't put yourself into it. But that person, while they may be a great um, writer in their base language, um, it's not going to, there's no way it's going to convey one-to-one directly in the form that it was given to you as a, a translator. So you need to be more flexible. And the more leeway you're allowed to be given and use that gray zone, I think the better end product you're going to have. But I, again, I think it comes from people revering and and not necessarily perfection in that case, perhaps, as it is a sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's a, you know, I, I absolutely can't let this person down. There's lots of reasons, I think, why people go down that path. But at any rate, still having the gray zone is something you need to to reach, I think, the best uh, end product. And I know when we worked with Alex Smith, you know, obviously the guy is the, the cream of the crop, AAA translator, um, interpreter, localizer, um, and also a giant, absolutely one of the tallest people I've ever met. I didn't even know I was standing <laughs> next to him. We were supposed to meet on a street corner. I was standing next to him, and I didn't even realize it. And then all of a sudden, he moved, so I thought he was a tree. I'm like, oh, it's, the tree is alive. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Are you Alex Smith? And massive. <laughs> Anyways, I, I digress. <laughs> the point is, you know, when he, we first started working on that project, he's like, you know, how flexible can I be? Because a lot of these jokes, they're not going to come through in English unless I can change up the names. And we are very fortunate enough to have a producer and the, the base creator say, yeah, the, the end goal is making the target market happy with what we have. It's not about 100% adhering to what I've written. And that is why that game uh, works so well, is because we were allowed to, to navigate that gray zone. And this is Phoenix, right? Right. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that's something that Alex uh, touched on when we talked to him uh, last year, you know, being able to have that flexibility and hearing that from you. I think I, we maybe heard that from Matt Alt and Zach Davis and other translators we talked to. Uh, so is, is that pretty much a, a universally held belief by most translators to, to <laughs> that you need that freedom and that gray zone? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the the perfect example is if a Japanese creator is going to be doing an interview and talk about sumo and you want it to resonate, you want the end users to to hear that and you want it to click as an example, trying to describe sumo, which is something maybe some people have never seen or if they have, they don't aren't familiar with it or if they do, they may not understand why it's being referenced at that particular time isn't going to work. So you have to sit there and say, okay, what is the category he's talking about? He's talking, he's making a sports metaphor. Okay. Is there another sport I can use that's more popular uh, to the end end user base? Okay. Maybe it's baseball. You know, can I, is there a relation, a correlation rather I can find between baseball and what he's trying to say with his sumo metaphor uh, that will still get that point across. But if I'm somebody that's a fledging translator, I'm like, oh, I have to talk about sumo, and then I have to explain what sumo is, and you know, then it starts losing its impact because <laughs> you've over-explained. You and check it, out the translation notes and yeah. exactly. the back of the exactly. booklet. And it's like yeah. if you're watching exactly. subtitles and they have the like giant culture note at the top of the yeah. screen <laughs> that goes along with like the subtitle. Yeah. So, so you're talking about that in, in interpretation or, or in translation? Are there times like on the fly you're like, oh, they, they said something about sumo. I have to hurry up and switch it up. 
Like, uh, does, does that, has that ever happened to you? I, oh, absolutely. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why people, uh, liked it when I would interpret is because I was very colloquial. I was switching up the, the metaphors, but still they were getting the point across. Um, sometimes people think that, oh, you're getting too loosey goosey with what is being said, which is act with what is base content. And again, that's why it's a gray zone. It's not, it's not cut and dry. Some people may not like that. Other people uh, may totally like that, but I, I swear by it. And all these other AAA translators, people, interpreters, people have been done it for their whole life. They all have that same common thread. So I think that's something that if you're going to get into translation, the faster you can get away from being fixated on the perfection on the one-to-one translation and instead add that gray zone, your special sauce, whatever, uh, into the work, uh, then you're going to become a better translator or interpreter for it. That's really cool. Um, so for, for our listeners who I'm, I'm sure some of which want to become translators, <laughs> do you have any advice? Uh, I know we talked about the gray zone, um, but do you have any, like, I don't know, like start, like actionable starting points for them to start their translation career, like how they, like, I don't know, throw their resume into how, how to certain, get their first job, a certain slot. And what do they need for it? There are publisher uh, side translators, like, like at Capcom or Square Enix. Mm-hmm. And that's an easy place to go. And there's not a lot of targets, right? So mm-hmm. that's one direction. Another concept is chasing the money. So whichever companies are cash rich are going to be spending more money on more games, potentially getting their projects to the West. Right now, that's the mobile market in Japan. So whether it's a side games, a Koropla, a Mixi, Gree, DNA, whatever, even though potentially a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to do mobile games, um, and they maybe turn their nose at it, it's still an opportunity to do a lot of translation work. So go to the non-traditional publishers, uh, you know, the non-Capcoms, the non-Square Enixes as well, if you've already tried that and it didn't work. Then beyond that, there's uh, agencies or translation houses. Uh, obviously, 8-4, they're one team. There's um, AGM, uh, they're another team. There are some companies that constantly are doing uh, or publishing a lot of games as an indie publisher, and therefore they need those translation resources. And you can send in your resume. You'll probably have to do a few translation tests, maybe be an intern for a while, uh, and then be able to work there. Um, and then beyond that, there is the freelance uh, path. And I know several freelance translators who swear by it. Um, obviously, Alexander uh, Smith has his own company, but for all intents and purposes, he's primarily a freelance translator. Um, and that's a way you can go, but you, you need to build up your client base and you need to have a decent amount of uh, work under your belt before that's going to be an option. Um, and then the last thing I would say is don't just get fixated on what you like games. I know a lot of my freelance uh, game translator guys that do like Netflix translations or anime translations. Hmm. There are enough culture, Japanese entertainment culture that is getting sent out to Western markets that you should be able to look around to a wide variety of different um, uh, media and that should help you get some extra um, free freelance work on the side. So speaking of non-traditional, um, I saw that you you worked on Mighty Number no. Nine. I was wondering if I could. I, I don't know. I have no idea what to ask. I was, saying, I was wondering if I'd ask about that, but I don't know if you could uh, <laughs> tell us about that. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. We have a coworker who backed it. He seemed. 
not happy. Know, not happy. I'm just like <laughs> yeah. curious. Uh, I don't know if you have any stories about that or. I have, I have or you can let us know how hard it is, really. Well, that that dials into the agent piece, and just really quickly to set the stage. So I didn't even know video game agents existed, uh, but mm-hmm. they do. I do know that in general, when people hear the word agent, they're like, uh, don't trust you, money grubbing. There's lots of bad things that it conjures up, um, which is a shame because I think the work that I do is absolutely necessary uh, and helps a lot of different sort of styles of games uh, to be created. Mm-hmm. But basically, a video game agent is the uh, video game version of a Hollywood agent. So we represent companies instead of people. We don't represent like a Brad Pitt or a Tom Cruise or whatever, mm-hmm. but we'd represent a from software or mm-hmm. a Platinum Games or something like that. And we basically try to help them find different opportunities to get funding for the sort of game that they want to make. Uh, a lot of times that's working with Western publishers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so with Mighty Number no. 9, I was uh, working with Concept. They wanted to do this pitch. Kickstarter and crowdfunding in general, what it does is it allows people to get projects funded that they otherwise would not necessarily be able to get funded. Mm-hmm. And a more uh, perfect example of this is going to be Bloodstained, the project that uh, the creator of uh, Symphony of the Night, Igarashi, Hmm. is doing. That was, I was his agent, and we literally shopped that around to all of the publishers. Everybody saw it, and everybody's like, nope, we don't want it, we don't think it's going to sell, yada, yada, Hmm. etc. So that game could only have been created through crowdfunding. And like I said, I'm about trying to empower creators and give them options. And if the traditional publishing money isn't going to help fund that uh, opportunity, well, then there's other venues. And at the time, for Mighty Number no. 9, crowdfunding was a thing. I'm obviously not a creator. I'm not a producer anymore. So at the end of the day, I bring the opportunities to the clients, and they have to end up making the games. And some games work out, and some games don't. It's very unfortunate about um, Mighty Number no. 9, that it didn't end up being what a lot of people wanted. Um, there's lots of, I think, complicated reasons for it. The most unfortunate thing is that it's a dream, right? You're really, you're funding a dream, you're funding a cause. And if you're doing it, you want that cause to, to be something that's good. You want it to work out. And when it doesn't work out, you know, it's, it's disappointing. And it was very disappointing uh, to me as well, um, even though I wasn't a concept employee per se. At the end of the day, right now, I basically do three jobs. The agent job is my main job. Uh, I also advise uh, for an indie publisher here in Japan. And then finally, I'm working with an indie developer uh, as well, making a game. And I can say this, of those three jobs, the indie development piece, making a game, is by and large the hardest. I can imagine. (laughs) Selling games, marketing games, etc., There's a lot of the stuff you can paint within the lines uh, on, but games, creativity, art, you know, I can give one person a canvas and they can paint the Mona Lisa and half the people may say it's it's great and the other half the people may say it sucks, you know. Um, And so since it's very um, subjective, it it becomes very hard to know whether it's good or not good, uh, et cetera. And that's why there are some games that, you know, take – seven, 10 years to get done. And others, you know, it would seem like ultimately 
Uh, it should be better than what it is, and it isn't. Um, but I can say this one final piece. I'm not trying to make excuses uh, at all. Like I said, uh, I do lots of things with lots of different developers. But I can say in that one particular case, um, and even though this has been said multiple times, there is a huge delta between the reality of how much a video game costs to make versus the amount of money that are raised on crowdfunding. People will see multiple millions of dollars and expect it to be, you know, an absolutely amazing game. That's not much at all. <laughs> it's, it really is not. It's like saying, hey, you know, I raised $7,000 for you to buy a brand new car. $7,000. <laughs> now yeah, go yeah. buy a really good brand new car. And, uh... and people are like, you had seven thousand dollars. Why can't you? You know, so there's. <clears throat> it's very unfortunate. I was hoping that crowdfunding was going to educate more people mm-hmm. about the actual realities of how hard game development was and the sort of budgets and risks that publishers and developers have. But it really hasn't. It's actually probably soured a lot of people on it um, because the expectations versus the reality was quite a large mismatch. Yeah. And even if even if it's like record breaking on Kickstarter for how much someone raises, it's it might not be as much as you think. Yeah. It's a drop in the bucket, especially if you're trying to do like 10 SKUs. Yeah, so. That's a good point. And, and I, just to be clear, I wasn't trying to like blame you or anything or put you on the spot. I was just kind of curious. It's, like, not, it's all right. None of the, like every, every game that you do can't be a smashing success. Like that's, that's ridiculous to think. So It is. It's, it's still unfortunate. Um, it's unfortunate to get that much excitement and then have it not turn into what people wanted. So at the end of the day, that is, that's unfortunate for everybody. I'm sure it's unfortunate for the team, for the people like me on the periphery, and for the people that are backers, obviously, as well. So so right before we go, I have a, one more question for you. Um, so, sure. Uh, going back to Alex Smith, who you mentioned a couple of times, um, and I know Alex Smith also knows Matt Alt. Do all the translators kind of like have a powwow and like get together do you, do you and have a secret club do you have like a, a secret, secret bar that you go to like <laughs> like do you all meet at like hashi because mo- I, I think in, also in tokyo or I, something I to matt alt he was like oh yeah zach davison i know him and there's probably I, mean, I know there's tons of other translators um that we don't know we know just uh, a small handful so do you guys have a secret like legion of doom that you meet, meet at, like <laughs> underwater <laughs> I wonder which one I would be uh, in that case. Um, no, the I just think that a lot of us grew up on those games, and that empowered our choices to go to Japan or to get into the games industry. Um, when Alex, you know, he said he was like post as you were wing days, so he was probably one of the, the the earlier translators to get in there. Obviously, Ted Woolsey, um, you know, Microsoft now, uh, ironic. Ken Lobb also there, also ironic. Um, a lot of these guys, you know, um, they're like the tier, they're like the tier two translators, whereas the tier one was like the a very initial group um, that probably did the Super Famicom, the Super Nintendo sort of translations. But then, you know, uh, Alex um, and then Matt and then a lot of those those people they came in. And they like took it to the next stage of like really proper translation. They've been doing it for a very long time. Um, and so they all, anybody who has done translation for that long is going to know each other. You're going to be in a very select group of people. And there's not a lot uh, of those people around. 
Um, and so, well, I don't, I know they know each other and I'm sure they meet up with each other and I've met up with all of them at, at one time or another. Um, it's just the industry over here is very small. I know almost every single foreigner, uh, in the Japanese industry and they probably all know me. So it's a very close knit, uh, closed community. And I imagine the translators, they know each other, uh, even closer than that. Wow. That's pretty cool. Um, so it sounds like it's a, you said it was like a closed community. And for, for people uh, like our listeners who are like, I want to join the, the community, it, it sounds like it's pretty small. I know you touched on a little bit of uh, like ways, ways to get in there. Is it pretty tough to, to get in? Is it like because there's just not that much space? There are, um, you know, I mean, I would send them a personal message. Most of these people are very nice. Whenever anybody sends me a Facebook message or whatever, I, I usually try to respond. But in general, there are a few like drink meetups that occur, one in Tokyo, and I run another one here uh, in Osaka. Um, and a lot of people that like games, whatever, go there. Uh, I think it's the Tokyo one's called Otaru, and the one that I do down here is called Kantaru. And I think they both have like Facebook groups or whatever, but that's one place to go. And it's like anybody can come and join, and there's half the people there in the game industry, and the other half uh, are just people that like games that are in Japan. That's another way to make friends and get advice and create a network. Oh, cool. So everyone go um, go visit Kantaru right now and he'll he'll have like if, a million more members there you go it's if <laughs> if you're in kansai definitely we, we love uh anybody that comes over there I mean, at the end of the day we just want to geek out with the people in our clan in our tribe uh and just like to to drink and talk about games so it's a lot of fun that's pretty uh, cool. and if you're so in close, tokyo actually. it's otaku you sound like humans no, <laughs> humans yes mm. humans that's right <laughs> Humans working yes, stressful we, Japanese jobs. We are all humans <laughs> here. Uh, but uh, I know, I know, guys. We've talked for a very long time. Uh, if you'll give me just one last minute oh, to yeah. hit on something, yeah, go for it. Honestly, I could talk for days because that's what I do for a living. Maybe we I can could have talk. you on again. Yeah, we'll just... we have a lot more like information here about you and questions for you, and mm-hmm. like we can definitely we'll continue the back. conversation at Part some two. point in the, this year. Well, I'd love to there. talk about. Yeah. I'd love to talk more about the the agent stuff and give you some more anecdotes there because the the game industry in and of itself is very interesting. There's lots of fun stories to talk about, um, as well as the indie uh, indie development. Um, there's a lot of foreign indie developers that are like, "Hey, I can make my game anywhere. Might as well do it in Japan because I love the place." Nice. So that that's a whole other thing as well. Uh, if you want to go in that direction, but long story short, like I said, there's three jobs that I do. Um, one of the other things that's new for me uh, is I'm advising and, and helping a group of uh, five guys. Um, the hamburger place, th- yeah. Th- that's right. We make hamburgers. Wow, that's amazing them. that you're <laughs> – they're doing very well. You're, you're doing a great job. Yeah. That's uh, right. But we also serve porridge. We just don't do it in Kyoto. <laughs> <laughs> they said no to that gig. Um, uh, so basically it's an indie publisher. Uh, it's called Dangen Entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dangen means like words of uh, committal, committal, committed uh, words, etc. Um, and all, ultimately, sorry, words of conviction would be a better uh, interpretation. Um, basically, it's a, an indie publisher. We try to take a lot of Western content and help release it in Japan, but sometimes we release content all around the world. Um, if anybody's interested in indie games, please check it out. 
Um, it's Dangen Entertainment, all one word. We're also at uh, Dangen underscore ENT. Um, the people that work there, uh, myself included, we just love games. We love talking to fans. Um, any sort of uh, words of encouragement, I know, uh, is going to totally motivate us. So oh, that uh, keep an eye on us. I get it. That's right. I was thinking like you guys really <laughs> like trees and like maybe Alex Smith inspired you. <laughs> the end. The end. Like, <laughs> oh, the end. Yes. And we're going to write, write all of this in the, uh, in the show notes so people can can find the links yeah, too. So if you're listening to this, uh, well, you are listening to this on something, <laughs> just go down <laughs> to the description and click those links. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ben Judd links, Dongan Entertainment. I, I think you were going to say one more before we rudely interrupted you. Sorry. We talked about ads. No, that was it. Oh, I was just it. laughing. Okay. But um, this is this has been an honor, guys. And what, you, what you're doing there on the website, um, you know, it's... It's God's work. It's amazing stuff. I wish <laughs> I wish I had those sort of resources when I was studying Japanese. Um, but uh, thank you very much for allowing me to be on this. No, thank yeah, you thank, for coming. Thank on. you for coming. Like, I was really excited for this, and and you know you haven't said objection yet. <laughs> <laughs> again, again, I'm going to have to have my agent uh, draw up a contract with you for oh, that. Because right. um, your agent, gets I can't paid say every time someone says it, not you. That's right. Oh. <laughs> That's right. Dirty okay. agents. But Blood. Would, would you say that, uh, like, if I asked you to say objection, would you, what would you say to that if you didn't want to do it? Like, I would say, I would say, <laughs> hell no. Oh, oh man. Phoenix Wright 12, <laughs> oh. where he gets dirty. That'd be great if you could, you know, someone make a ROM hack, please, of, um, <laughs> yeah. of Phoenix Wright and replace objection with hell no. no. Yeah, it's like, I found this evidence on the scene. Hell no. <laughs> You've got to say it into your DS. Yeah. <laughs> and you can take the audio straight from this podcast and put it in the ROM hack. You did it. Oh, man. I need to learn how to ROM hack now. <laughs> uh, and then, I, oh, that would be such a great t-shirt, actually, to have the objection with the, uh, the splash <laughs> and then that font, which is how to say hell no. Yeah. Oh, man. Yep. That's our new Tofu right. store. All right, listeners. We'll send you a cut yep. of, of yeah. the t-shirt Un- sales. Unlike Capcom. We'll we'll send you a cut of yeah. every hell no. There you go. Yeah. So thanks so much for for coming for coming on the show. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. And we're gonna have you, you guys back have, on uh, again. Have a great weekend. Okay. It. Yeah. You too. Hey. You too. Thank you. Cheers. And bye bye. Hello. That was such a great interview. Oh gosh. Yeah. With Ben Judd. That thanks for being one on the, of the show, best, Ben. I think. Yeah. yeah I, I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Definitely. Learned a thing or two. It was, it was good to hear about the the gray zone. Um, and we actually have a pretty similar philosophy on that on Tofugu. So that was, that was kind of cool to hear, except for like, we talk about it in terms of learning. He talked about it in terms of like past, well, you're still learning always, but like in like your professional life when you're yeah, using Japanese. In terms of success. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, we talk about it in terms of failure. Failure. No, we don't do that. Well, you know, failure that leads to success. Yeah. So like it's, uh, you know, I think it's important the whole kind of all steps of the way. And that was, that was cool to hear that he has to use it all the time too to, to be successful. So what are the action items, items, items for this week? Um, well, this week's action items, uh, well, I think, uh, I think the, what Ben said about like a lot of people look to their future and they're like, oh, I want to go to the top of that mountain. Mm. And that's cool. And then they just keep th- like, they're like on the valley below and they're like, this is a nice mountain, huh? Oh, that oh, it's snowing on the mountain now. Oh, now it's, now it's dark. And then they just keep watching the mountain instead of <laughs> taking those steps towards the mountain. Like you got to take those first actual actionable 
steps. And, uh, you know, no matter who you are, no matter what your level of Japanese is, no matter where you're at, what you do,、uh, you can take those first steps. And,、uh, you know, if you think about a mountain and you're in the valley, those first steps are pretty flat. It's not that hard.、Mm-hmm. You just got to do it. Yeah. So, so break, down, break down your mountain. Uh, plan a little bit this week into, into some actionable steps and then take that first chunk and break it down into even smaller steps. I'm going to contradict what you said, Michael, and, and just、what? be like, instead of planning it, just do something. Okay, that's true. Do something true. actionable because it's so easy to plan forever and ever. Okay, so never don't do plan everything. You can plan some things yeah, as plan, long as you do them. Plan those first few steps. Yeah. yeah. Don't plan too much because then you'll get tired or you might make a plan that's so heavy you can't lift it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like、uh, the Greek man who pushes the, the boulder up the hill. That's、yeah. what happens. He made that boulder too heavy. He made that boulder too heavy. Is that how that story、heavy. goes? Yeah. I really、he、don't know. He made too many、much. plans, and his plans became boulder, <laughs> and he pushed boulder uphill.、And、That's the story. Gosh, if he had just done it, like, like the Greek god of shoes says, then like, you know, maybe he, he could have just done it. Wait, Greek god of shoes? Yeah. Nike? Oh. Oh, yeah, that just, was a Greek god. Just do it.、I'm、so good at Greek mythology. Was, was, that a Nick, was that a Greek god? <gasps> Isn't it? No, I was just because I, I kept saying, like,、it? just do it. And I was like, haha, it's a funny joke about Nike. And then it's a Greek story. So I was like, haha, let's, let's say he's a Greek god. Anyways, way to, I'm on the Nike way to swing and miss on, on that, that one, me. Me too.、Um, anyway, what's our second action item? Yeah, to see, we're、Shinzo、not worried about、Abe. perfection. <laughs> yeah, we don't, this is our gray zone. <laughs> <laughs> well,、uh, yeah, this one, if you could,、uh, I guess, tweet at Shinzo Abe to let him know what you're going to do to get into his game business. <laughs> Be like, Mr. Shinzo Abe, I'm going to. I'm I'm going to take these steps, these actionable steps, so I can do the thing I want to do, even if it's not becoming. A game boy or a game girl or、uh, a translator or anything that we talked about today, you know, it's still everything applies similarly. And, you know, you can, you can make those steps, but make sure to let Shinzo Abe know because he loves to hear from his constituents、mm-hmm. that are not in Japan、he、or、really、citizens of his country. He pays attention to his mentions, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we can get enough mentions out there. And、uh, make sure to include us in the tweet too. Otherwise, We'll have no idea that you're sending. Yeah, please, please do at Tofu. And some of you have done that, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. And really, this is for our entertainment more than Shinzo <laughs> Abe's. So, you know, you got to include us. I'm、Otherwise, sure once how do we have fun? he's retired from being prime minister, he'll be like, oh, now I finally have time to check my Twitter mentions. What are all these? There's five Twitter mentions here. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, our, our third action item、uh, if, if you enjoyed the podcast, we really appreciate if you gave us a. Review、uh, not only pressing the stars button, and I, I do mean plural stars more than one at least.、Uh, more than that, gosh, remember that time where、more、I told everyone to give us two stars? No, Boy, did was, you come through on that one! That was me. Uh, <laughs> uh, more than four is preferable. Any,、yeah. any number higher、like、than four, five through seven, five through are seven. all acceptable. Just whatever option it gives you between five and seven, go ahead and click that. Yeah, but what else besides the stars? And then、uh, make sure you actually leave a written review. Yeah,、um, use your words and not、uh, your anger fists. Yeah, and like, you know, those, those really help us out, and we enjoy reading them, which we actually do. We read them, and、uh, I, I know like it's kind of hard to come up with something to say,、uh, but、uh, if you're having trouble coming up with something to say,、uh, go ahead and 
you can write these words word for word. Go ahead, Michael. <laughs> Tell him what to write. <laughs> okay. Uh, here's the words you should write. Oh my gosh, I am so happy to be writing to you, Tofugu Podcast. It's my favorite podcast. My favorite is Koichi and Michael. Also, Kristen and Jamal and Kanai and anyone else who's been on the show are also my favorite. Uh, five stars all around. Better than Mark Marin and who else has a podcast? Oprah and... Um, word for word. Uh, yeah, be, be sure to put all this us in here and everything I'm saying right now. And done. Done. Cool. Perfect. Yep. So we appreciate that. And then after that, you can write your own thing, like your your shout outs to your your mom, your wedding proposals, your, um, you know, yeah, like and anniversary week, announcements. Someone had us do a shout out to their their nieces and nephews, and we did it. That was great. That was yeah. our first shout out, and we loved it. Do you know their those nieces and nephews now are so confident that in school they get all A's? <laughs> that's that's true, and all the other kids love them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, if you want to empower someone in your life. Just mention them in a in a review. Mm-hmm. Do we have a review to read this week? We do have one review. Would you, would you like to read it? Because I read the last one. Okay, I think I read the last one. No, I read that one. Really? Yeah. I'm. I have so many false memories. Too much. Too much drinky alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> this one is by P. Zamino, and uh, they write humor me and gave five stars. Thank you. If you love joking around so much, why don't you do a podcast on Japanese humor? <laughs> I'm guessing that's directed at us. (laughs) Maybe similarities and differences to other cultures. American Jerry Lewis found huge success in France. God bless the French for taking him off our hands. Jerry Lewis isn't that bad. (laughs) Are there comics hitting it big in Japan? Uh, I don't know. That might be fun. Talk about difference in Japanese humor. Uh, I don't don't know about it. I'm not sure. I, I sure... Boy, do I know that my humor does not hit in Japan. That's yeah. for sure. I can talk <laughs> about that, about my my sarcastic outlook on humor and how people just think I'm a jerk. <laughs> and then I have to explain it. You have to ex- explain the yeah. explain the sarcasm. And you know, the best the best way to do humor is to say something that people don't get and then explain it. Because that makes all jokes funnier. Yeah, explaining them. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, Kristen was telling me some things about origins of Manzai. We'll just have her on. And there you go. As be like, she is the professional of comedy. Yeah. So, Kristen, you're listening to this right now. You're going to be on the podcast and explain <laughs> the history of Japanese comedy. I'll, I'll answer for her right now. Uh, no. Oh, yeah. Yep. She might say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, thanks for the suggestion, Pizamino. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually a pretty good suggestion. Don't know if we'll do it, though. Yeah, I don't know if we're qualified. We might not be qualified. Because as but. we've seen from our other many reviews that you guys have left where you said... These guys aren't that funny. <laughs> I wish they'd stop trying to make the jokes. Is what a lot you of say. people have said that. It's insufferable. That that's come up a few times. Yep. And that's uh, my new favorite adjective to describe myself. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, if you're listening and you are an expert in Japanese humor, send us an email. Maybe you can be a guest. Yep. Maybe. I'm typing an expert on Japanese humor <laughs> into Google <laughs> so I can find somebody. <laughs> Oh, on that, we'll let you know how it goes some other time. Okay, see you later, guys. What's, what's the first website? Just read that. Um, and we'll understanding end. Humor in Japan from Wayne State University. Yep, that's <laughs> accurate. Yep. That's a book. That's a book. Yeah. Let's, let's, we can email that guy, I guess, or girl. Yeah. Bye-bye. Ha-ha. <laughs>